Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have a full crew here in studio today. Good morning, guys. Morning, Dustin. Good morning. Brian. Good morning, Brad. Philip. Hey, Brad. Bob. Hello, guys. And we're happy to have you listening with us as well. We've got some great topics today. One of the things, Dustin's been traveling a fair bit, and he is starting a new center looking at economics and animal health. We're going to have him tell us about that. Bob just completed some bovine leukosis research in mature cows, and we're going to learn about that as it was just published recently. And then we had a listener question on grazing cost. So we're excited to talk about those topics. If you have topics you'd like us to talk about, you can always send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. And before we get into those topics, guys, we are in the heart of summer, and I know you guys are all competitive as well. So I want you to top. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go with a taste of summer and you got to come up with something better mine homemade vanilla ice cream can anybody top that yes put it on some homemade apple pie I don't, I, I, no you're close okay you're close but you didn't top it okay because you use same base ingredient oh uh, well, okay there's, there's rules to this, and I may it, not have expressed it, 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 all of them at no, the start. You did not. <laughs> or any of them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll go watermelon. And, watermelon. Ooh, well, and he's yeah. the judge. I think yeah. this might be a little biased. <laughs> might be rigged. Yeah. I'm going to go pie also, but I'm going to go red raspberry pie. Oh. Oh. Interesting. I was going to go a totally different direction. I'm thinking like BLTs and corn on the cob. and. Oh. Oh. Yeah. 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 Ding, ding. Philip wins. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to go right now. <laughs> that is exactly right. Yeah, that is a good boy. Those are good. And just stuff you can get in the summer. Mm -hmm. so, nice job. Hopefully everybody is having a, a good summer. And Dustin, I know you have been traveling a fair bit, a lot related to, and, and you're starting, and it's called the Collaborating Center for Economics of Animal Health for the Americas. So not just North America, but really the whole western hemisphere that you're starting this is a, a really exciting thing tell us a little bit about what led to this so that's yeah that's a good question so i guess it would have been march february of 2022 the world organization for animal health which was originally founded as oie they approached me and said hey would you have any interest in starting a collaborating center for the economics of animal health and i thought let me think about it for a little bit. <clears throat> now, myself and a colleague of mine up at Washington State, we've been talking about this for probably three or four years, although we were thinking just for the U.S. And then more recently, we thought about maybe North America, just because of our trading partners. And they said, no, it's got to be for the Americas region because that is our defined region. We've got five regions globally, one of them being the Americas. The Americas consist, at that time consisted of 32 countries in North, Central, South America, and the Caribbean islands. They added one more this past May, so they're at 33 countries. And so that's how it all came about. So this is a great opportunity to have some of those collaborative relationships. And I know you and Bob were talking before we got on the air about the importance of the findings of what you're going to come up with for veterinarians and the input from animal health people, nutritionists, others, production side into what your center is doing. So how, how are you going to build some of those relationships? So yeah, in the proposal itself, myself and a colleague at Washington State, who is an ag economist, we said, you know what, you know, all the work that he and I do is interdisciplinary, right? We work with veterinarians, work with epidemiologists, work with computer scientists, et cetera. And so we, we, that was a core component of it. 
Additionally, because we are in the Americas region, we thought, well, we need to expand outside the United States. And so we've got partners actually from the vet school in uh, Mexico City uh, and University of Brasilia and University of Sao Paulo. And so this is a truly collaborative, uh, interdisciplinary uh, center. And, and then here at K-State, we also include BCI, you know, some epidemiologists here as well. And so it, from the collaborative, multidiscipline, I mean, it's going to take, if you want to solve any complex problem, right, dealing with animal health, it's not just a whole bunch of economists in a room or just epidemiologists, right? It takes people who can, on the ground, that can collect the data. We've got a team of computer scientists that are actually building uh, databases and warehouses and dashboards and stuff at a at the University of Guelph, and so it, it it's not just a case state. It's it's much bigger, and it's it's and it's lot of different individual uh, disciplines as well. So if I'm a if I'm a producer and I'm thinking about okay, this is great. What are what are going to be some of the outputs of that center that are going to benefit me, impact me? What can I learn from this process? So I'm not you know I haven't thought a lot of it all everything through. I mean I can't say that. It's, you know, every study is going to help, you know, directly a producer, but there'll be a lot of indirect effects, I would think. So when we conduct research, the idea is we conduct research such that we can help people make better business management decisions, whether if that's the government, if they need help working with how do we come up with a, a vaccine strategy to maybe control African swine fever or, or high path AI, something like that. You know, directly, it might not, if you're not producing if you're beef cow and we're talking ASF, but we're thinking, you know, international trade has impact on prices, which eventually will get back to a producer. So I can't say everything is going to be directly related to each producer, but there will be some studies, some things that we look at that are going to be more at the farm level. There will be other things that will be more at the policy level, maybe for, you know, the national governments. The, the, the cool thing when I've heard you talk about it before and what you're doing is, it reminds me, and you can tell me if this analogy fits or not, but it reminds me of the Moneyball, that movie and that story of what you're doing is you're quantifying and you're saying, okay, here's the differences between this disease and this disease, so we should do this, and here's how we put together the program. Is that a fair analogy? Yeah, and so like in my mind, the way I envision it is if we can come in and just say feedlots, for example, if, if we know that ideally if we didn't have any animal health issues or animal burdens, we could be here versus here's where we are today and we can estimate that total burden. Okay, so that's step one. Well, then how can we attribute that total burden out by disease? So this much is contributed to BRD, this much is to, you know, blow, or this much is to heart disease. And so long run that's what we'd like to do by country and then we can of course aggregate that up into more of a, an america's region or actually ideally global uh, burden of animal disease well then it tells you where to focus right and that's 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 the point is you know we are limited resources as you noted earlier how can we help put those resources to best use i mean how can we optimize uh those those limited budgets Yep, absolutely. And I think this is going to be really cool. Looking forward to getting that started. And you're, st you're starting the process. And I know as you've gone about, you talk to a lot of different folks from different regions. There's also going to be some cross-pollination or sharing of information with diseases that maybe other regions have more experience than we do and vice versa. Yeah. I mean, like I said, we've obviously we're working with folks and partners with in, in Brazil and other countries. But, you know, there's we're Part of what we're trying to do is also set up these similar centers in the other, in the Africa region, Middle East, uh, the Asia region. And so 
as we help start these other countries or other regions build these centers, hopefully we start to build more collaborations, more partnerships across the globe, and that way we can you know learn from them and they can learn from us. No, absolutely. I think that is a, a great project, and the data to manage those diseases is there, but it's segmented right now. You're going to integrate that, put it all together into an area, and you may not have data on every disease, but that's part of what this is. That's part of it because, you know, here in the U.S., I think we're pretty fortunate where we have a lot of data. When you start looking at some of these other countries and maybe more developing, there's little to no data. So that's part of it is collecting original data, but then also trying to put it all together in a similar similar format. Excellent work, Dustin. We look forward to seeing some of the results from your group. And I think there will be a lot of really good information there on diseases and how we prioritize them. Speaking of that, Bob, you've done some work recently on bovine leukosis, which is an important disease that we've talked about some, haven't done a lot of research on. You did a cow-calf study, but before I turn to you, I'm going to ask Brian to tell us a little bit about what bovine leukosis is. Yeah, so bovine leukosis, it's a it's a viral infection in cattle, and it, it can cause cancer-like syndromes, so it can lead to the clinical syndrome of cancer, um, and it's leukosis, so it, it actually, the virus infects the lymphoid tissue or the immune system of cattle, and so what, what you can see as if a cow has true clinical leukosis, you might see things like big swollen lymph nodes. Usually we see those like under the jaw, we'll see a big swollen lymph node. You can see cows that lose weight pretty rapidly. Those like clinical leukosis cases are actually pretty uncommon compared to the number of animals that actually have bovine leukosis viral infections. And so I know Bob did his study in beef cattle, and we'll let him talk about that. But really, a lot of the research for leukosis has been done in dairy cattle, and and we know a fair bit about it. The study, so USDA, during when they do their surveys, um, they haven't done a dairy one for a while. So some of the older dairy studies show the prevalence is very high within the USDA industry, like 85-plus percent of the herds have leukosis in the herd. And for large herds, it's even, it's almost a hundred percent. And so uh, we know that many of the animals um, infect in, in the U S at least in the dairy industry are infected with the virus. We've talked about ways to manage this disease within the U S cattle industry. Uh, and simply because the prevalence is so high, things like testing and culling just aren't options. And so really what we're left with leukosis virus is spread through share bloodborne contact right and so um, <clears throat> biting insects can transmit the virus and then human interventions like sharing needles palpation sleeves tagging equipment tattoo equipment all of those things can lead to the transmission of leukosis virus which is why we prevalence is so high which is why we see it yeah exactly which is why we see it in a lot of cows we see it in a lot of operations and the question is what does that mean? So, Bob, tell us a little bit about your study. And you worked with Dr. Hoosier here, who's a clinical faculty at K-State, as long as some, as well as some other collaborators. What, what were you guys looking at? Yeah, this was a good project. Um, Dr. Hooser kind of led the study, but we also had some collaborators here at the Diagnostic Lab at K-State, as well as some collaborators up at Michigan State University. 
And so Dr. Huser is teaching our senior students, and they went out and they looked at, it ended up being uh, 43 herds across eastern Kansas, you know, about 13 counties in eastern Kansas, so pretty good spread in this part of the state anyway, and about 3,000 cows. And what they did was they collected as much information as they could, you know, the age of the cow, uh, the size of the herd, even things about, you know, their neighbors and their contact with neighbor neighboring herds of cattle or or not and whether they became pregnant whether the cows became pregnant or not during the breeding season and we were also interested because you know i'm always talking about momentum and getting cows pregnant early the likelihood of getting pregnant in that first 21 day period of the breeding season so basically our question was how common is infection with blv virus and is it associated with the probability of getting pregnant or the probability of getting pregnant early in the breeding season. And Brian mentioned this, but I think it bears repeating. Most of our knowledge about leukosis, the virus, and how prevalent it is comes from dairy cattle. Your study was done eastern Kansas, beef, cow-calf herds. Yes, that's exactly right. And and so, and, and it's also, I want to point out, it, it's the first of several studies that Dr. Huser has kind of planned. So there's more questions that this study brought up and the other questions that we have. So we're planning to kind of continue this investigation into the future. Well, what'd you find out? Well, what we found was, much like Dr. Luber said, this virus is really, really common. So over all cattle, it was about 44% of the cattle were BLV positive. Now, the interesting thing is once you get to be about four to five years of age, it goes up to almost 80%. So basically, if you're past four or five years, if the cow is past four or five years of age in this study, they were very, very likely to be a BLV positive. Across all herds? Or did you have herds that were positive and herds that were negative? Of the 43 herds, we had one negative herd. Wow. And so it was, and, but some of the herds had very few positive cows and some were essentially a hundred percent positive cows. And so we had a, a pretty good range, but there were relatively few herds where the number would have been zero or a, a low number of positive cows. So most herds were, uh, well, let me say it this way. Um, more than 50% of the herds had more than 50% of the cows infected. So, so for a research perspective, this is a great population to ask the question that you really wanted to ask, which is, what is the effect on reproduction? What'd you find? Exactly. Well, we actually found no effect at all. And, and we use several different ways of measuring. There's, there's different, di- that's why we use the diagnostic lab and some diagnostic testing. There's, we use three different tests to identify the BLV virus. And basically what we found was no effect on the probability of getting pregnant and no effect on the probability of getting pregnant early in the breeding season. But Was that surprising to you? It, it wasn't really to me because I'd been involved in some projects like this before and it, it, this is such an interesting concept for veterinarians to talk about is, can this virus cause serious disease? Yes, it definitely can. Does it usually cause serious disease? No, we knew that. The question was, does it cause more subtle things? And probably, but we didn't pick it up in the area of the likelihood to get pregnant. Yeah, which is what we really care about. And, and I think it's interesting, though, that it is very prevalent probably much more prevalent so if i go out and test a random cow based on your data pretty pretty good bet that she's going to be positive pretty good bet she's positive and she's and, probably healthy 
And and you mentioned the age once you got to be four or five years old. So age was a pretty big factor in yeah. this. Like in the young animals, they may not have it. But this ties in, Brian, you were talking about bloodborne transmission, whether it's insects or, or needles from us giving injections in the dairy, same way and, in the meat. And to clarify, and that once they're infected, they're infected for life. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that makes sense that the older you are, the more years you've had the potential to be infected. Yep. Cumulative buildup over time. So if there's no big effect on re reproduction, I, I'm going to jump to outside your research and say, so what do I do with this information? I'm a, I'm a cow-calf producer. How do I use this knowing that it's likely we're positive? Do, do I modify anything? There are some purebred producers that are using a, a more aggressive approach to try to eliminate or reduce the number of cows. There are some herds that will actually go do some testing and then do kind of a clean herd, dirty herd type of separation. So there's some things you can do, whether, you know, kind of going back to what we were talking about with, with Dustin, is that cost effective? That's not clear. That it, that is not clear that it is cost effective. You could so, say it's not cost effective from a repro side based on right. your research. So the next level that, that Dr. Huser is leading is now calf health. So now we're following those cows forward and seeing that, does it have any effect on the percentage of weaning calves and stuff. So that's, again, so Dr. Huser's got some good ideas about how to ask more questions that we don't have the answer for. I think that, you know, you ask the question, basically, does it matter? And what Dr. Larson and Dr. Huesner are doing are starting to give us the building blocks to, to answer that question, right? Because before, we didn't know, did it affect, and if it does affect repro health, if it had, let's say your study found it had, then you'd be able to put that into your calculation and go, okay, well, here's the benefit of test and coal or running two separate herds because all of those carry costs with them. But at this, at this point, I think that's interesting, and it'd be interesting to follow up as you go forward in this research. But at this point, it's not a big thing that I would be excited about as a commercial producer. As a purebred producer, that my decisions are a little bit different. But as a commercial producer, probably you're going to have to show me something else to say there's a, an effect. Uh, and knowing how to interpret those tests. The other thing that I would encourage is if you're thinking about this disease, talk with your veterinarian, talk with your diagnostic lab. Because you, you mentioned this in passing, there are several different tests that are available to look for this and they all give you a little bit different answer mm -hmm. maybe good maybe bad it depends how you want to interpret use the information from that test well let's provide a little bit of information like one of the tests that we have is basically are they infected or not and the other test that we use kind of quantified well how much virus is in there and so one of our questions was well does it matter just being infected or not and the answer was no it didn't matter so then we looked at it another way what about the cows that have a lot of virus in them versus the ones that don't have much and we still didn't find an effect but it's it gives you a clue of how we might use those tests that you know are you positive but low are you positive but high those are some of the things that again this is really an interesting area of research because again i'm going to tie it back to what dustin was talking about is it doesn't appear that a really expensive intervention is warranted but what if we could control this disease less expensively, you know, with less culling or with a vaccine or something else? That's what we're looking for, because I would say the answer that we're getting is a really expensive intervention is probably not warranted. That doesn't mean that no intervention is warranted. If we could find a more cost effective intervention, that's really what we'd, we'd like to come up with. Absolutely. So good, good research there. And we'll put a link in the show notes to where that is published if you're interested in reading the article itself. Last topic, and I do want to address this because 
We had a listener question from Southern Indiana and, and essentially said, I'd like to have some information about how do you calculate the cost of grazing? So if I'm feeding hay or feeding supplements, it's relatively easy. I could look at either my purchase price or my, co- my opportunity cost based on selling that hay. What about on the grazing side? And Philip, I'm going to go to you first and then I want to get Dustin's insight as well. Well, I think a couple of things to think about on the grazing side is, again, just thinking about the costs that go into grazing. You know, fence, fence, building fence, fence upkeep, water development, or, and maintaining that. Fertilizers uh, that go on pasture, um, for that type of pasture, weed, weed control, or, you know, any of those things that are going into managing that pasture or that grazing land and then pay attention to stocking rate because you're going to look at this from a cost per acre basis okay but then what you want to transform it into is i'm going to get paid based on pounds of calf weaned or pounds of gain if i'm running stockers and so i need to know my stocking rate and how many animals i can carry for how many days out of the year to try to figure out, okay, how does that relate to my income? Yeah, I think you're, you're exactly right. Is You're thinking about that comparison, and it's not just the cost side, right? Mm-hmm. It's the back and forth between the two. And my alternative, if I don't graze, would be feeding something of hay or some mm-hmm. other sort of forage or not having cattle, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, figuring out something else to do with that land. Dustin, what are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so the only thing I was going to mention that uh, Philip didn't was land, like the the cost for the pasture and i guess one question i had was is did they indicate if they're renting the land or are they just trying to calculate their own it didn't say in the it didn't say in the question but i think that's an important distinction right so are you are you leasing this land renting it or do you own it and you could do something else with it right and because if you are leasing the land i think then other things come into play what kind of expenses or inputs does the landowner have and how do you share those expenses. And so those are just some other things I guess I would keep in mind as well. Well, and you guys do at, at agmanager.info, you have typically, and I've looked up there before, leasing rates, right? So what is it for leasing pasture in different areas of Kansas? Because of Kansas, <laughs> yeah, But some of it comes out of the USDA. So it wouldn't be just Kansas only. That would be, you know, Indiana as an example as well. And so if, and, and given they're in Indiana, I would probably go take a look at, you know, the Ag Econ uh, extension website at Purdue University or even maybe University of Kentucky and they might have some information additional on the leasing rates, the land rental rates, etc. Because those those are good. They've already calculated in some of the stuff that Philip mentioned, but they're not as good because they're not specific to my operation, right? If I if I have higher fertilizer costs or I have higher fence costs or whatever. So but if you can find a budget already developed you can tweak it. Some tool already online. Then you just tweak your add your numbers and, and the, the you know the foundation's already there. Excellent, excellent, good input, guys, and I, and I think good discussion today relative to several disease topics, but also the economic center that Dustin is is talking about, is starting. If you have any questions, comments, or any feedback for us, we'd like to hear from you. Send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.